0: Thank you, thank you. Good morning. Thank you for that half-hearted applause. I love you too. We are, no, 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 I'm not looking for, I'm just playing. I'm playing, thank you, that's sweet, that's sweet. That's very nice. Now see, now I feel bad. Now I feel bad that I said that. We're going to, uh, we're going to Exodus uh, chapter 34 in just a couple minutes. Uh, let, me, let me pray before we dive in. Lord, I'm so grateful for your presence here all the ways that already you are making your glory known this morning we just want our hearts to be open and tender and soft we want our minds to be clear and alert so we just take this moment now to pause uh, to breathe to remember just how near you are we're surrounded by your presence and just to just to anchor down now just to kind of center in this moment where we're in a posture now where we're, nothing matters except receiving from you. And um, j- just in the way that the text we'll talk about today, beholding you, beholding your glory in a way that inevitably will, will transform us. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everybody said amen. amen. So I grew up in these great Pentecostal revivals and camp meetings. And I love them. Uh, would not be who I am without them. Incredibly grateful for those experiences they were colorful. And even just growing up in the South the way that I did, I often say that people in my real life are all like characters out of a Flannery O'Connor short story. Um, Colorful, colorful characters, wonderful people. And some of my favorite memories were of uh, actually going to the summer camp meeting that our denomination put on was a really big deal. I mean, so much of our lives were oriented around those kind of experiences. And I was thinking this week in particular about one of those evangelists who I love to hear. He was a healing evangelist. He was known to pray for people, lay hands on, on people, and all that, and uh, he had this deal where there's a lot of things I can say about him, actually, but one of the, the unique things about him, because it's kind of like every traveling evangelist like that, it's sort of like in professional wrestling, like everybody has a finishing maneuver, like, <laughs> like everybody has like their one thing that's like uniquely them, and his deal was laying, not laying hands on people, laying his Bible on people, so like he would put his Bible on your head, and people would fall out. My favorite thing he ever did I thought was so awesome is that he would actually throw the Bible, and when he would, he would say, receive the glory, bam, people would catch it, and they'd fall out. It was awesome, (laughs) really awesome. I I thought about trying that this morning, but I'm using my iPad for notes, and it's like, (laughs) it's very expensive if it goes wrong. That's the difference, in case you don't know the difference between being in the spirit or in the flesh. It's like, if you do something crazy, if you hurt yourself, you're in the flesh, so if, you know, but, if, you're, but if, if, if it doesn't hurt, if you fall and you hit your head on something and, you, and you're bleeding, and that, that means you're in the flesh. But if you get up and you're okay, that means you're in the spirit. At any rate, I love, I love this particular evangelist. And one night I was in the 10th grade and I was dating this girl, sweet little petite, blonde-headed Baptist girl, had never been to a church of God service in all her life. And she wanted to come with me to camp meeting. Now, I honestly, I tried to keep her from doing that because she hadn't even been to a regular Sunday with me, and she wanted, no, she wanted to go to the camp meeting. So that night, she would sit with me on the second row, and actually, by our standards, the service was fairly tame, like it was. Everything was pretty chill. I honestly thought I had dodged the bullet. I was like, I just picked the... I was, I was thanking the Lord in my heart. I was like, thank you, Jesus. It's going to be like a normal night. And towards the very end of the service, the same night, the same night speaker, the same evangelist who came a lot called out another man sitting in the same row as, as, as we were. He's this, uh, an evangelist himself. And kinda, this kind of a big guy, this, comes in, this is an important story, he calls him up. He's like, Brother Small, I'm going to pray for you. And when he comes down there at the front, standing right in front of us, I mean like feet away, he lays his Bible on him and bam, he falls out. And the evangelist says, I want seven or eight big men to come and pick him up. <laughs> so <laughs> a bunch of guys gather around and they pick him up. Hits him with the Bible again. Bam! He's back on the floor. Get him up, pick him up. They pick him back up. He's staggering to his feet. Hits him a third time. He did what I'd now refer to as the Seven Dipper on Brother Small that night. The Seven Dipper. Seven times he got back up and hit him with the Bible. Feet away from me and my little Baptist girlfriend. You can imagine the kind of conversation we had after that service. It's amazing. It's amazing. I remember those days with great fondness. Or I think about like uh, another evangelist that I love. And now some of you might have heard of him. He's more famous, T.O. Lowry. It was a big deal in those days. T. L. was a healing evangelist. Came really kind of in the Oral Roberts era. He's still alive and uh, they're much older. And he just, man, I just thought he was, he was such a hero to me. For one, he was handsome and stylish. And I remember him actually telling once, I laughed so hard at that, that he talked about leaving the hotel for one of the meetings and said, like, yeah, like the maid that was cleaning saw him and says to him, uh, Mr., I don't know where you go at night, but I just know that when you leave here, you look like you're off the cover of GQ magazine. But when you come back, you look like you've been in, like, a war zone. I mean, he was just... <laughs> the, he would have three-hour altar services, pray for everybody in the building, uh, healing lines for days. I, love, I, went, I got in every healing line and every altar call for salvation. He also did this deal often of like he'd warn you of the wrath to come and then like it'd be this deal like in three seconds when I say amen, if you, if you want to be saved to run down the altar. I ran down to that altar so many times. I would still do it. Pastor Brent, if you ever do that here, I promise. <laughs> I promise because I'm still a little uncertain if I'm, if I'm truthful and I just always feel like it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to be sure. So, so I will run. And, uh, but Brother Lowry, and he had this big voice too. It's it's hard to imitate this gravelly voice, but it's something like, he would talk about the glory of God. The Shekinah is in the house tonight. And is it his gravel? It's this amazing, amazing voice. And I just, in my child's mind, I always thought, and to be clear, I really feel like God used these people. I believe that God uses all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. But I just thought this, this haze that they seem to walk in, this bright shininess, Surely they must live in this all the time, you know? They, they're, not, they're just not regular people. I would try to envision Brother Lowry like going through a drive through and just wondering what that's like, you know? Give me one of those uh, Whoppers. Uh a Big Mac and a side of glory. I could just, like, is this... I wonder if he talks to his wife this way in the bedroom. Like, I just wanted to know. Like, I, I wanted to know. I just thought, like, this is... Is everything come this way? It's like, it's just... Because my sense was, like, and he was known to do these 40-day fasts. I just thought, like, this is, these people just walk on water. And, of course, then, uh, oh, so story I left out, the first evangelist I was talking about, never will forget, we went to Shoney's one night late afterwards. There, not a lot open at those hours. It's 1130 at night. No bistros. We go to Shoney's. And one night, he left his little black notebook where he kept all his sermons that he would travel and speak with in the tabernacle, and he asked me to go back and get it. I was 16. I thought that was the most amazing thing. I promise you, I carried that little notebook out of that. you thought you thought it was the Ark of the Covenant, the way I held that, because I just thought to even touch the notebook, like what kind of powers are located in this thing? I just man, I was so I was so enamored, and so inevitably, as I got older, right, and um, as I just kind of grew up in that world the more I would get to see some of these men behind the scenes and find out they were regular people and they had regular issues. They did regular stuff and had regular problems. Of course, at the time, that was extremely disruptive to me because in my mind, it's like, well, those things don't go together. You can't operate in this kind of anointing and glory and then turn out to be like a regular broken person. And the childish response to that, incidentally, is always going to be like, well, it just it must have just not been real. That must have just been faking. Was it? Faking had nothing to do with it. I will say, though, in that world, I do think we have a lot of unhealthy. Just insofar that there's this idea often in my, again, from my side of the railroad tracks, where preaching in general is you go into the phone booth as, as Clark Kent, and then you come out Superman, just utterly impervious, no signs of any kind of pain, no, no damage, nothing that's broken. Everything just seems so bright and shiny. And that's how we think then that the glory of God works. We think that, you know, that we always assume that there's somebody out there who gets it in a way. We do not. This is operating. This, so believe it or not, I am going to the text Exodus. Um, we're looking at Count in Exodus thirty-four, where Moses is operating in that kind of bright, shining, conspicuous glory. This blinding, brilliant glory, like the night evangelist that I saw. We we see Moses in that same place, legitimately touched by God, and he's just radioactive with holiness. That's the phrase I want to use. Radioactive with holiness. Exodus thirty-four, beginning with verse twenty-nine. Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and as he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, that is some powerful anointing right there, is when you've got so much of the glory of God in you that you're actually shining. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses seemed unapproachable because of this bright shininess. The glory of God was so brilliant on him. People were afraid. They didn't feel like they could talk to him. So Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, now watch this, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off. Until he came out, and when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So, Moses, the guy who's in the presence of God in such a spectacular way that he has to wear a veil so that the glory doesn't blind people. That is such a powerful image. But then we get to the New Testament, and I love, I got so excited when I saw that this was the lectionary reading for today because I love these texts. The reading from the epistles is from 2 Corinthians and really is is truly one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Years ago, actually, my friend Dr. Chris Green uh, illuminated me to kind of read 2 Corinthians in a different way, and that has just never gone back. But 2 Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul in a place where he's... um, By Paul's standards, a lot less shiny. Uh, 2 Corinthians is where we see Paul, the glory of God still shining in him to be sure, but we're seeing an apostle who is frazzled, who is broken, who is exasperated. The context is, uh, in Corinth, where Paul had essentially planted this small church and where he had personally discipled and baptized these people... Now there are some new guys in town that Paul refers to as the super apostles, or I should say they refer to themselves as super apostles. Paul kind of calls them the so-called super apostles. The so-called super apostles are said to perform better miracles than Paul. It is said that they are better speakers than Paul, and we get glimpses of this actually throughout the New Testament. People didn't think Paul was especially impressive to hear in person. It even seems to be hinted at that the super apostles were better looking than the apostle Paul. Nobody likes to hear that. So we see Paul here legitimately feeling <laughs> wounded, right? I mean, you can feel some kind of ego wound here because, like, these people, one, the folks that he's loved and poured into, he really believes that the super apostles will, will deceive them. So he doesn't trust them. But beyond that, you can just feel through the text over and over, he's just hurt. His feelings are hurt. And one of the things that's so beautiful about Paul, one of the reasons I love him so much, makes him such a colorful character, is that, I mean, you always know what Paul really thinks about everything. So Paul, throughout the letter, you just get these glimpses of everything going on in him. There's a couple sections I won't read to you today just for the purposes of time. But later on in Second Corinthians, one of my favorite sections is when Paul has this whole riff, and it's a little mini-speech that's built in a style of rhetoric that was popular in his day, where essentially you're, you know, you're giving all your accolades, and it builds and builds and builds. And Paul just has it, clearly kind of cheeky Um, He's having a good time. He just has fun with his list because Paul, as he's giving his list of accolades, he starts out with, you know, Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm a Jew of Jews, all that. But then he goes, it can sound very Kanye West at times, actually. And then, like, but as he goes, then he kind of inverts it, and, and I'm kind of self-deprecating. He's like, you want to hear my credentials? I've got beaten up more times than anybody else. I've got more stripes than anybody. And as he's building all of this, it builds in such a way to where traditionally in that style of rhetoric, it would build like a climax where he's gonna tell some story about something really brave and amazing that he's done. And instead, and I I always think this is so funny if you know what he's really doing, because he keeps turning all that upside down. He gets to the end of that section where he's listing all of his accolades, which is a list of all of his weaknesses and all the times that he's been beaten. And he closes with, and then when the emperor was coming after me, they lowered me out the window in the night and I escaped. In the words of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, he bravely ran away. (laughs) Like, right? In, it, it, like, you just feel it. It's building, building. Like, oh, so what, what does Paul do? Does he fight back? No. They, they, and then they lowered me out, and I escaped in the night. It's so, he, he clearly has such a sense of humor, which I love. Uh, that's just kind of Paul. It's also later in Second Corinthians when Paul will tell the account about how he has a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that means. But some kind of affliction, whether it was a physical ailment or whether it was a, a besetting temptation that he struggled with, we don't know. But we do know is that this great apostle, this great prophet of God, asked Jesus three times to take it away, and three times God tells him no. Finally, to say, Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace, my grace is sufficient for you. And that, and that's it. So Paul, over and over again throughout the text, keeps showing his weakness. Not an intuitive thing to do, because keep in mind that the super apostles show no weakness. They're attempting to act as if they live in the cloud of glory all the time. They act like they're superhuman. People treat them like they're superhuman. And now you've got Paul seeming to glory, he'll use that phrase, in his weakness. All of that to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, one of my favorite sections of the New Testament if you watch what's going on. I want you to be like, just, just really pay attention to detail in this text because there's so much going on, and it's so awesome. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 12, says, since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. Let's leave that verse up for just a second. So now, I'm telling you, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, because you've got Paul here making a claim that we don't get an exodus. All Exodus tells us, is that because of the glory of God being so bright and brilliant, Moses had to wear a veil so that people would not be blinded. Paul now, and we don't know where he gets this from, because it it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Torah. Maybe this is coming from uh, rabbinical tradition. Maybe this is coming from like Midrash sermons on the text from the Old Testament that he had heard within his tradition. Or maybe he would claim that he's just seeing these things and knows these things by divine revelation. At any rate... He wants to tell us something that Exodus does not say, not to say that God didn't really reveal himself to Moses, not to say that the glory of God wasn't revealed through Moses in a remarkable way. Moses is like the great patriarch of the Old Testament. Everything goes back to Moses. Everybody loves Moses. He's the most celebrated prophet in all of Israel's history. But what Paul wants to say is that Moses actually didn't just wear the veil, In order to keep people from being blinded by the shininess, he actually throws Moses under the bus here (laughs) and says, Moses put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. Translation, Moses kept the veil on even after the glory wore off so that nobody would know the difference. Maybe because he was afraid of the people. We know how much they murmured in the wilderness. It appears here to be, uh, Paul critiques it, as some attempt to kind of keep control. Moses was afraid of losing control and losing influence over the people. So he has enough sense to know if he keeps the veil on, that then even when the glory is is, is, is set aside, nobody will know the difference. That's what happens whenever you put a veil on. (laughs) There's space created between me and them. Nobody knows what's really happening underneath. Nobody knows what I'm really feeling. Nobody knows anything that's happening like internally. It, it, it creates this barrier. And Paul wants to say, as great as Moses is, that he does a great disservice to the people of God by doing this. Let's read on. So verse 14, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the old covenant, that same veil is still there. "'since only in Christ is it set aside. "'Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, "'a veil lies over their minds.'" Even now, they're still seeing through a veil. "'But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. "'Now the Lord is the Spirit, "'and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom.'" Note, in Paul's context, this wasn't about freedom and worship. That's okay. Well, I always thought of it that way, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You can clap your hands, you can shout, you can say amen. All good and all true, but that's not what this text says. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, so that all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. That's the kind of freedom that the Holy Spirit brings, is freedom to put down the veil, freedom to stop living with the pretense, freedom to be a real human being, to allow the glory of God to be, to, to be seen through an unveiled face with all of his blemishes. Paul says Moses really, whether he meant to or not, did the people of God wrong here because in his act, and I think this is so interesting, right? The pretext for Moses keeping the veil on is to protect the people. <laughs> this is for their good. People can't, people can't see me as a man. People can't see me when the bright shininess is not on me anymore. People can't see me without the glory because it's for their benefit. Aren't we still telling ourselves that? I can't let my kids see my humanity. I can't let the people around me that I, I'm in community with and I worship with, can't let them see the real me for their protection. Because if they saw all of that, well, it might, it might harm their faith. They might be disappointed. It's always in the name of protecting people. But in reality, what Moses, all Moses is trying to do here, according to Paul, is he's protecting himself. He doesn't help anybody. He says, because Moses did this, the people of God are still stuck there now they still look back at the past with rose colored glasses and they still romanticize the good old days when moses did all of his great miracles the good old days see that's that's a sermon in of itself just a footnote there are no such thing as good old days people let's just make that clear there are no such thing as good old days what happens is when the world is changing and you feel threatened, you go back to a time of your life where you look at it and you kind of romanticize it and make it better. Actually, that time was a lot harder than you remember it being. Actually, that church that you grew up in that seems so idyllic and perfect now was just as regular and just as full of ordinary people and ordinary stuff. I love this in a political season when everybody talks about the good old days in America. We just need to get on back. We've fallen so far. We need to get on back to the 50s. Great days. When we had separate water fountains and Jim Crow laws and they weren't good old days for everybody now, were they? Rose colored lenses, but they never cussed on television, right? This is like, this is, this is how we think. Paul wants to say that Israel, the the Jews, the people of God got stuck in the mythology of good old days because Moses would never lift the veil. And now they're still stuck even now. And this way, Paul being Paul, what of course he's really doing is kind of saying indirectly, and again, Paul has such great personality, is this way of saying, I, note that, not like Moses. (laughs) See, unlike Moses, we're not keeping the veil on. Unlike Moses, we're not deceiving anybody. Unlike Moses, we're not self-protecting just so we can retain influence and control. I'm allowing the glory of God to be shown through me through my brokenness, through my weakness, which is what we see through this text over and over again. I think, though, I just can't, I just can't stress enough how many reasons we have, though, to want the veil. And I'm going to talk about this in a couple of different directions. But I think, like, there's a part of us that really wants, and I, I see that in myself. I see that when I was young. I wanted the people, people to be on a certain kind of pedestal. There's, we want a celebrity-driven kind of culture. We want, we want these figures for some reason. I think there are a few of them. I remembered uh, this week also, this is a funny memory, when I pastored our church in Charlotte, we were part of a, of a denomination. And whenever the denomination put on different events or initiatives for pastors, I would try to go just trying to be like a team player. But I went to one that really did drive me a little bananas. And even now to talk about it just sounds funny. They had partnered with an... Or- I, I don't mean to make fun, but I, maybe I am making fun a little. They had partnered with an organization Uh, that does this thing called 24 to double. In other words, 24 months to double your church, which actually is a pretty common kind of playbook. You would come in over the course of this time. Once a month, we'd have the seminar, and the guy would come in and give us these tips. Guaranteed, if you will follow these steps within a particular uh, town within a particular community, your church will, will double in 24 months. I'm not even saying all that works. I mean, you can franchise a Chick fil A. Doesn't take the Holy Spirit, but that's neither here nor there. And there. If, if you're guaranteed to get the same results every time, whether or not God shows up, this is probably an indication that this might not be healthy. But that's, again, another story for another time. I remember sitting there and having this moment where it really landed on me weird, you know, because I, I got the idea of doubling the church. It was always framed in context of. Well, we'd want to reach more people for Jesus, don't we? Yes. Don't you want to see lost souls saved? Yes. You know. And again, I understand the intent was good and all that. But he was talking about how no matter how small your church might be, right? no matter what the size of your church, it's important that as soon as you can, that you get video screens where someone is filming the pastor while he's preaching and putting him up on the screen. He said, even, I remember this, even if you only have a church of 30 people, you still need to have the screens with, because this is what he said. People want their pastors to be larger than life. I've never forgotten that phrase. People want their pastors to be larger than life. In a way, I think that's true. I think people want their leaders. I think people want their candidates to be larger than life. I think there is a part of us that really looks for this. But there's so much dysfunction at work in it. See, to bring things back around, I think that there's just something about this idea, again, that like, so often when any of us, and I know I'm I'm using the church context a lot, but I really want to make this about your everyday, like real life. So much of our instinct to try to self-protect, so many, so much of the reason why I think we end up putting on a veil, we will tell ourselves it's for somebody else's good, but really it is for our own. It's because we're insecure. It's because we're afraid that people, if they saw the real us, would reject us. So there's all kinds of veils that we can put up uh, we can dress in such a way. We can present ourselves in a way to where we always look completely polished, and become so obsessive to make sure nothing's out of place, so that people always, so that we always present well in that way. Um, for some people, I think it's a, some people just kind of emotionally disconnect. Like there's never any sort of authentic emotion, nothing like remotely vulnerable, because there's this sense that if I let people see the real me then I'd be rejected. Sarcasm and cynicism can be a great veil to wear because then if you just do that all the time, if you just wisecrack all the time, no shot anybody ever sees the real you and that you might be rejected and it comes off super strong and confident. My experience is often those of us who, and as one who's done this most of my life, who feels the need to project that way actually are the most insecure people. We're the most broken people. We're so desperately afraid of anybody seeing the real us. So there's the need to be so polished, to be so together, to be so presentable. And if you ask me why I do that or why I've done that in my life, it would always be, well, but the people, people need to see a man of God who blah, 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 blah. They can't see me as an ordinary man. Why not? Why not? What's a disaster if they see you as an ordinary person? What's so bad about that? Because, he, see, here's the trouble. If they hang out around us long enough... They will see you as an ordinary person. Because, congratulations, you are just a, r- a regular person. And I know we could do that whole deal about thumbprints and it's unique, like the snowflake, and you're a regular person. You do regular stuff in regular ways. You're not that special. None of us are. We're all tempted in the same handful of ways. We all fall in the same handful of ways. Nothing especially interesting about that. It just is. All broken in the same handful of ways. It's it's always the same. But in this attempt to kind of set ourselves apart as if somehow we're above that or we're over that, we do that in the name of like what? Protecting God's reputation? See, that's what makes Paul's message in 2 Corinthians so revolutionary, I think, is that Paul wants to say the way the glory of God works is that it's precisely when you see God's light, when it's precisely when you see God's glory through broken things, that's where the gospel goes forth in power. That's where Jesus is lifted up. Paul's like, I love Brother Moses as much as y'all do, but Moses got this part wrong, which I get right. Unveiled faces. (laughs) This is how you see the glory of God. And this is why Paul throughout 2 Corinthians allows us to see his broken heart. This is why he allows us to see his fragile ego. This is why he allows us to see, yes, all this talk about the super apostles has gotten a little bit under his skin. Because Paul's aware that the way that God's glory works, the way that the brightness and beauty of God is shown, is not by somehow going around weakness, but precisely by exposing it. They're exposing that, they're revealing that, people will see that the glory comes from God. God. And lest you think I'm making this up, let's read just a little further in here in 2 Corinthians. I'll, and I'll rush ahead now. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. This is in contrast to those super apostles. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to to God, and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, the very things that seem to be killing us, the very things that make us seem broken, weak, and small, are actually bringing life to you. Because Paul understands that the glory of God has been placed inside of earthen vessels. Very particular context here. In Corinth... It was the place where people made, it was kind of pottery, these sort of cheap lamps in our vernacular. You would put a candle in them, and you would carry it around at night to be able to see. And in Corinth, they often made these, they were popular, they were kind of mass production. They were kind of flimsy. Paul wants to say here, God has placed his light in flimsy lamps. And precisely the way this works, the way that these lights show so much glory is precisely because they're flimsy precisely because they're cracked. You get more light that way. You're not impressed with the vessel. You hear what I'm saying? You're impressed with the God who brings the light. That This is the image Paul wants to give us of himself. Look at how weak and unimpressive I am, and yet see the light of God shining through me. No other explanation for that except for Jesus. No other explanation for that. This is the way that we're supposed to live. I just feel like I'm, I'm I need to land the plane before long. I just feel this so strong. I just feel like for some of you, this could so revolutionize your life. You think so much that you need to have it together. You think so much you need to present in this way. You think that that's what you need to do in order for God to use you. And the very thing that you think is necessary for God to use you is actually what's stopping the flow of the Holy Spirit in your life. What you think it's making you more useful to the kingdom. It's making you less useful. What you think is helping the people around you is actually hurting them. Because the best thing that could happen to the people around you is that they get good and disillusioned with you <laughs> so that they might actually fall in love with Jesus, right? Can you imagine that? Would that be a terrible thing? is that through your own broken humanity that they were able to see the glory of Jesus, doesn't mean that there's not real glory in your life. Doesn't mean that God is not transforming you. In fact, that's what Paul says earlier, right? Is that through unveiled faces, we're beholding the glory of God and now we're being transformed into his image. So they will see transformation, they'll see growth, but they'll still see it through an unveiled face that has blemishes, that has flaws, that's still struggling, that's still working things out. I don't know why I just felt this right now so strong. I just think some of you, it's like you want to believe that because that sounds good. You want that to be true, but it just still feels a little bit like I don't know how I feel about this. This sounds a little weird, and you know, I hope you're not putting down Moses, whatever it might be. There's just like this sense of like you still, want, you still want your leaders to be bright and shiny, and I'm just telling you on behalf as a person who long before having to look in the mirror and deal long and hard with my own disappointment issues... For whatever reason, I always seem to play the role of confessor for all kinds of people in ministry who feel comfortable sharing me th- their stuff. So I'm telling you, not just on my own account, but on everybody else's, okay? I'm speaking for everybody in the ministry. Don't you like that? <laughs> like, I'm telling you, those people that you think like, but, but, they, but they're bright and shiny all the time. I'm like, you can't be that. The only reason you think that is because they're going the Moses route, not the Paul route. Doesn't make them bad. Not saying they're liars. I'm saying they ain't doing you any favors. By keep, I, the more I start really preaching, I get more country. <laughs> By keeping that veil up and that thing that makes you say, "Oh man, that I'm just not, I'm just not even worthy to be around. I I, I, I could barely even touch that. That's not helping you. <laughs> this is the only thing that can help you is when the people around you, through, with vulnerable, painful transparency, allow the glory of God to be seen through their brokenness. That's how the kingdom is built. Thank you the four of you who like this sermon, I'm, I, I want to look at one more text really, really quickly because I just, I, I want to keep bringing this around to uh, the ways that, I, I, want, I want us to imitate Paul here. Paul says that also, also a very Paul-like thing to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let me show you how to do this. And the way that that looks like for Paul is not look how macho I am, not look how cool and awesome I am. It's always like, let me, let me demonstrate to you how the Spirit of God works through brokenness. That's, that's the way it works for the Apostle Paul. And I think we should follow his example. But I still, for just a moment, want to flip it. Because I do think that for a lot of us, a lot of our, I don't know, just so much of our struggle in life, in the world, is that we're still looking for the people around us to be bright and shiny. We're still expecting things from them that they can't really give to us. And that's not just true about church leaders or, you know, I use the example of presidential candidates, whatever. It's true about just regular old relationships. How many of us, I wonder, have like a narrative where most of our lives is some version of, here I am just doing the best I can to just love Jesus. Yeah, maybe I have my issues, but I'm doing the best I can. I'm a good person. But the narrative of our lives become, but the people around us are just perpetually disappointing man, I just one relationship to the next where you thought that this person was gonna be everything. You thought you met this guy. You thought you met this girl who was gonna meet all these needs. And then you got close enough to them and they just turned out to be a regular person. so disappointing. But now you got a new relationship where maybe this person is gonna turn out to be bright and shiny in all the ways that you hoped the last person was and wasn't until that turns out not to be the case and then you know and then it's on to the next relationship right i just think we do these things over and over again some of you have been from one church to the next and your narrative is like you're just a good person doing the best you can for jesus but man every time you get behind the curtain you just find that there's just a little man back there projecting the image on the screen <laughs> i got news for you friends behind every church, behind every institution and every structure, there's always a tiny little man behind the curtain. There always is. Go Catholic. I'm talking about the Pope. Be charismatic. Be Baptist. Be Mormon. Be a pagan. Be whatever it is in the world you want to be. I promise you, behind every institution, there's always a little person back there who's not all that impressive if you were around long enough. This is just the way the world works, but so long as you're still looking for somebody to occupy, that kind of, to occupy that kind of space, one of the things that makes it saddest is that so long as we're living expecting that out of others, it's the thing that keeps you from looking in the mirror and being able to see, oh, wow, I'm actually really broken too. That victim narrative that it's always somebody else who's broken, and here you are, humble, honest, doing your best for Jesus, if not for those people. See, what's supposed to happen is that we're supposed to be able to see our own brokenness in such a way that makes Okay, that seriously relativizes your expectations for everybody else. I see that I'm broken, so then I'm not surprised when I see the brokenness of people around me. That's the way this is supposed to work. But so long as you're still looking for somebody else to be brighter and shinier, I really am closing with this. Almost no commentary on this text. Luke chapter 9. Today is Transfiguration Sunday on the church calendar. And I wanted to land with the gospel text. Luke, Luke 9, beginning verse 28. About, now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. So now Jesus is the bright, shining one. And his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men. Oh, imagine that. Moses, we were just talking about him, and Elijah talking to him. what he said. I love that clause. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. I love that phrase. And they kept silent in those days, told no one any of the things they had seen. How long will you continue to try to build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah? How long will you continue to try to glorify some person, expecting someone to operate in this bright shininess that they just can't maintain? See, Moses and Elijah were sharing in the glory of Jesus for a moment, but after everything settles, Jesus is the one who stands there alone, and I'm convinced That sometimes what God has to do is he just has to let us keep on being disillusioned. He has to let us keep on being disappointed. That feels really painful, but in reality, it's grace. You need to keep having those illusions broken. You need to keep having those expectations shattered. That needs to happen to us over and over again until finally Jesus stands alone. And we realize that he's the only one. Who can bear the weight of our hope and expectation. He is the only one who will not disappoint us. He is the only one who will not leave us or forsake us. He is the only one who's perfect. He is the only one who's good. He's the only one who's worthy of our worship. No one else is larger than life but Jesus. Every other person is going to disappoint you. So I really believe as hard as it is for us to hear, the Holy Spirit is at work right now in the relationships that are a disappointment to you because he's trying to teach you how to look to him and him alone as your source. He's trying to get you to look to him and him alone as the only one who provides, the only one who's good. When you come to live at that place, I'm trying to bring everything full circle and I'm so over time. That's what gives you the strength to walk in this kind of vulnerability, this courageous, powerful vulnerability because you're drawing from God as your source. You, like Paul, are not afraid to let people see your weakness. You're not afraid to let people see your own brokenness because we become confident that, the, that even through our brokenness, in fact, precisely through our brokenness, the glory of God is being shown in us. Stand with me if you would. And Lord, I just pray for, well, I just ask that you would break some things right now, Lord Jesus, because I just believe that um, it's, it's easy to talk about these things in a way that's fun and is fun and is funny, and um, all the ways of our, our corporate humanity, um, there's, there's a lot to laugh at. But what I do know is that this is serious bondage in people's lives, both their own, the pressure that they've internalized to always look perfect is, is, is killing them. sucking the soul and life and joy out of them. And in the same way, the expectations that they're placing on others to somehow be something more than human, to be something more than broken, that's tyrannizing us too, Lord. I just pray today that you would set us free As Paul taught us, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where now nobody has to act anymore. No one has to posture anymore. No one has to sound smart. No one has to look cool. No one has to appear any certain way. We we have the freedom now to allow your glory to be shown through our unveiled faces. So I pray, God, for the grace of veils being cast down and cast aside pray even now, Lord, that by your spirit, you would allow us just to take some of those veils now and just to, just to, just to tear them away. Lord, we don't need them anymore. We don't need to protect. We don't need to protect the people around us in that way. And we don't need to protect ourselves, nothing to be afraid of, because the reality is you're good. And if you are good, we know that you, you can more than compensate with your mercy and your goodness and your brilliance for all of our stupidness, Lord. Teach us how to walk in that. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week grace and peace.